Welcome to the Rhode Island School of Design. This is the newest student-led podcast series at the world's leading art and design institution. This is Ristiology. You know, the sun is out in New York and things are starting to feel a little more like normal. So you're not in New Haven. You're back in New York City. That's right. I'm at my office. I'm typically these days in New Haven every Thursday and Friday. So how has it been uh, (laughs) juggling sort of your amazing life of being a practitioner Mm -hmm. and the dean of the Yale School of Architecture amidst COVID at the same time? <laughs> I think it's been as it has been for everybody, which is uh, awful. Um, yeah, yeah. It's been trying and exhausting and um, difficult, and one feels badly even complaining or acknowledging that because it is so much worse for so many others. So, mm-hmm. um, trying to make the best of it, I've become a better cook. Um, and I take much longer walks. There you go, right? (laughs) Yeah. On this episode, I sat down with RISD architecture alumna, Deborah Burke, founder of Deborah Burke Architects and Dean of the Yale School of Architecture. We spoke about what life would be like in the year 1000 the lack of optimism in retirement communities across the United States, and how her RISD education helped land her first job as a graphic designer at an engineering firm in New York City. Thank you for being here today. And I wonder if you could sort of bring us back to your first few days at RISD and, and what that was like back in the, in the 70s and maybe talk about campus and Providence and where you were coming from as well. I think we'd all love to hear that. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. I mean, it was Providence, Rhode Island in the late middle 1970s was fabulous. Um, you know, mm. It was a little rundown, but that made it all the more fabulous. Um, and of course, that was not an era of urban revitalization. It was an era of um, artists being in cities and industries leaving cities. Mm. Um, I, I grew up in Queens in New York, but I okay. had um, gone to an all-girls boarding school in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, not a famous one or a fancy one. So I had a quirky background uh, or an unusual background. And I vividly remember my parents dropping me off outside the freshman dorms 
Nickerson maybe is the name mm-hmm, of it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I even remember the shirt I was wearing because I had made it myself and I had dyed it pale blue and I had used um, linoleum stamps that I had made to cover it with dark blue stars in a random pattern. Uh, they were big stars, like maybe five or six inches. Um, and they were all over the shirt. And I moved my boxes in to my room and I thought, this is going to be the greatest time of my entire life. <laughs> right, right. And it was. Yeah. Um, and, but I will say, so it, there was a lot of partying going on. I assume that's still true at RISD. The workload was really heavy and demanding. And I assume that's still true at RISD. Hmm. But in the middle of the night, you know, walking back from a bar in the jewelry district or something, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. could walk down the middle of Benefit Street and not be hit by a car. You know, there was nothing going on. Um, you know, the same is still true, 100%. <laughs> I'll have to come back. <laughs> it hasn't grown that much since you left, it sounds. <laughs> um, so I love, I mean, I loved that. I, um, it was an adventure. It was all a wonderful, fabulous, creative adventure. Yeah. And you know, another thing I was talking to uh, Michael Maltzen a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that on his way home, he would stop by fellow uh, departments uh, to sort of uh, meet with his friends and see, you know, what they were up to. And I think that's a, another awesome thing about RISD and just the small sort of community and how um, we're in this urban environment with different structures and you can kind of walk in and walk out. And it's, you know, it was so true of that for me is that in um, my last year, my studio, it was before the architecture had its own building. And we, so we were on the top floor of Metcalf right next to glass blowing. Oh, I didn't even know that. Okay. That was really amazing. And I, you know, I often uh, comment to people, particularly, well, Yale has a great art school, so it's mm. not necessarily so true at, at Yale, but at many, many sort of uh, humanities, liberal arts, or sort of world-class universities, the architects are kind of the craziest people on campus. And mm. I often <laughs> note about RISD that the architects are kind of the sanest, calmest, <laughs> sort of most corporate people on campus. Yeah, exactly, and, exactly. And the good news about all, all the artists, you know, the sculptors, the glass blowers, the, the welders, the photographers, the filmmakers, the fashion designers, whatever, whatever, the mm-hmm. everybody else, is that they were great critics of your work. And they would, yeah. you know, demand that you be crazier or more experimental or try a different material or think about a different way of drawing your building um, or your design idea. So mm-hmm. being together literally in Metcalf, uh, to, to Michael Maltzen, he's a little bit younger than I am, uh, mm. you know, just wandering past other studios or going down the stairs of Metcalf and mm-hmm. you know, seeing at some weavers or people dyeing fabric after you had seen people blowing glass and talking to everybody. That and the friends you make during freshman foundation. So, you know, I was there to become an architect, but you know, the woman sitting next to me was going to be a fashion designer and somebody else was going to be a photographer. And they, you were all, you know, making a chair out of one piece of cardboard or you were all uh, mm-hmm. in the nature lab together. And later on, in, you know, as you became a sophomore and a junior and you were pursuing whatever your 
medium was mm. um, or your area of interest, these people were still your friends, you know, and, and they right. could be, uh, they were great critics, uh, great and candid critics of your work. Yeah. I mean, you're making me really excited about the relaxed COVID regulations in the fall. I just really want everyone to be back in the building. Um, and, you know, this also makes me think about, there was a, there's a studio this semester in the architecture department by a faculty member, Aaron Forrest, or maybe it was last semester. Anyways, the, the topic was called Giant RISD. And mm. basically it was the idea that we should merge all of the departments into one giant wood timber frame building. And, you know, it was so exciting to me because sometimes I feel like our departments are so separated and we miss those connections um, I between totally, the architects. And I the love that fashions. idea. I mean, yeah. in a way, that's what Metcalf was. And I'm wondering right. whether if you go further back, you know, long before my time, whether in the 60s or the 50s, it was even more fully integrated when the mm -hmm. campus was smaller and the student body was smaller. Um that it really was like one giant RISD where everybody was mucking around in the same mud together. You know, how fabulous would that be? <laughs> yeah, I would love that. Oh. So were there any uh, individuals at RISD who served as role models for you or fellow students who had a big impact on uh, your trajectory or where you've sort of landed today? Um, Faculty-wise, I would say uh, Judy Wolin, who um, I think was my first female architecture teacher, um, who taught me, this will sound ridiculous, how to think about making a building as opposed to just how to create a building, you know, that you needed mm. to bring a sort of a theoretical idea to it as well as just a creative gut response to it. So Judy, for sure. Um and this will this will sound funny, and this does relate to the um, the glass blowing, uh, the top floor Metcalf back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, was I was a huge fan of Toots Zinsky. Now I'm not sure she even knew who the hell I was. She was years ahead of me, um, and she was a glass blower and a glass okay. artist. But she just had this wild creativity. And in an area that was mostly men, you know, um, right. and I'm not sure I would have been able to articulate that part of her appeal then, but mm -hmm. I can see it now that that was part of it. You know, she swaggered with the rest of them and I really admired that. Mm. Um, the, those are the two names that come to mind. Maybe Michael yeah. Fink, the English teacher. Um, oh my gosh, <laughs> my absolute favorite person on this campus <laughs> like forever right and yeah. um he was an incredible teacher he remembered everybody and he does. He does. uh yeah i'll tell you a story about that in a sec but but what was what i so appreciated about him is that he understood what it was like to to teach in english i guess was his subject um writing and um literature etc to a bunch of artists for whom mm -hmm. that was not their primary concern. You know, we mm -hmm. weren't literature majors at, at Harvard. We were mm -hmm. art students at RISD and he was our English teacher. And he kind of got that. He got how it would connect to what our primary work was. Um, and decades later, um, I, I was in Providence for some, I think I was actually giving a talk at Brown and I was walking on Benefit Street sort of for old time's sake. Mm. And he recognized me and came up and said hello and i i was wow. i was completely blown away 
So yes, I would, I would add him <laughs> to, oh my, to my list. He, you know, I, I talked to him as well a couple months ago and um, I, uh, I think even when he decides to retire, if he decides to leave at some point, he's like a tree and uh, his roots will always be sort of ingrained in the RISD culture. Um, and yeah, he was, he could uh, sort of remember anyone yeah. back like 50 years ago, mm -hmm. <laughs> like their, their first name and last name. Mm -hmm. It was crazy because I can mm -hmm. barely remember what happened, you know, last week. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you... So tell me a little bit more about your time in the architecture department and then sort of like leaving and then leaving RISD. What was that transition like as you went uh, into the sort of the real world of practicing architecture? Well, I took a little bit of a break. So I got, you know, RISD architects get a BFA at the end of four years and mm -hmm. then a Bachelor of Architecture, which is a professional degree at the end of five years, professional mm -hmm. degree, meaning it allows you to take the licensing exam. Um, but in between my BFA and my Bachelor of Architecture, I went and spent a year in London studying at the Architectural Association. So that mm -hmm. was a little bit of a out of Providence experience and a very positive one. So I came back. Um, so there was and, and finished my Bachelor of Architecture after my time. So a year later than the people in my class. Um, and then I moved to New York and, you know, the late seventies were not a good time economically. And, mm. uh, there wasn't a lot of work for architects. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the benefits of a RISD education. I got a job at a global engineering firm in New York city as a graphic designer. And I had a RISD friend who had majored in graphic design, essentially spend a weekend with me teaching how to use the teaching me how to use this is so long ago no computers right blue pencil and hot wax to stick the type down wow. um and i That's went to so work on, on monday morning and that was my first job and i uh made slides so that uh petroleum engineers could explain petroleum storage this was during the gas crisis uh technology to senators and congressmen. I mean, it was kind of fascinating, also completely ridiculous job, but it was a great job for a, you know, a 22 year old in New York city. Mm -hmm. um, and because it wasn't fulfilling enough nor close enough to what I wanted to be with my life, mm -hmm. I started hanging around in the evenings at the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies, which was Peter Eisenman's sort of architectural think tank. Um, mm. He didn't have much respect for people who went to places like RISD, but I hung around there anyhow, and eventually started with a friend, um, a program for high school students there, you know, sort of, we went to them with a proposal, will you let us do this? Um, so I was in my early twenties, I had a sort of day job, and then I had a weekend volunteer job teaching 16 and 17 year olds who were interested in architecture and whether they went to public school or private school or a suburban school or an urban school, they could come on Saturdays and um, 10 weeks in the fall, 10 weeks in the spring and four weeks in the summertime, uh, 10 Saturdays, I should say, during the school year and have kind of be taught about architecture. And that's what got me into teaching. So I feel mm. as though I left RISD with all of this sort of creative energy 
and uh, found a place to found multiple places to direct that energy when I got to New York. Wow. Yeah, no, that's a great, uh, a great way to definitely give back uh, sort of your RISD experience. I think we have a similar thing. I could be wrong, but I think it's called ACE Mentorship uh, here at RISD, where I think on Thursdays, uh, high school students come in and we sort of some of the faculty members teach them about uh, the basic principles of, of architecture and design. And I think that's just such a great way to to engage high school students, definitely. Well, you know what's also so great about it is, of course, uh, um, schools, particularly public schools, don't have the resources to offer this exposure and introduction and interest and training and materials. Right. And right. if we want to attract students to, uh, you know, young young people to careers in the creative arts, whatever they might be, mm -hmm. um, exposure is a great thing. And it's really fulfilling and satisfying. So that's how I, you know, somebody said, well, how did you end up being a dean of an architecture school in a place <laughs> yeah. like Yale? Be like, well, I taught high school kids about architecture in yeah. New York City in the late 1970s. <laughs> it all goes back to that. Love it. Um, so what what advice would you give kind of graduating seniors? I mean, is it more, you know, go with your flow and, and see who you can connect with uh, to kind of get your foot in the door in any way possible based off your graphic design sort of experience, which I love, but sort of coming out of the COVID pandemic, what, what would you say to graduating students, no matter the major, not, you know, not architecture, yeah. or anybody? Uh, do your work, do your work, do your work. Like whether you're working as a waiter or, you know, a website designer, hmm. make, keep time for your work as a sort of sacred thing. Um, hmm. You know, for me personally, it's every Friday morning. Um, but, you know, it can be whenever, you know, depending on how old you are and what your job are, job is and whether you're doing it at your kitchen table or in your backyard or, you know, what, whatever your circumstances might be, just keep doing your work. Because hmm. if you stop, it's really hard to start again. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely concur on that. Um, so how did you end up, I guess, a kind of sort of transition? Was there any skills that you learned at RISD Architecture that sort of at when you were a point in your career were like, you know what, I could do this on my own. And I, I could found, I could found my own practice, which I think you did in 1982. Right. Um, and, and so what was that sort of transition like? I'm curious. <laughs> I think that transition really occurred because I'm a lousy employee. Um, <laughs> and I was working at a big New York city architectural firm and I was very unhappy. Um, mm. I didn't like the nature of the projects or the way the work was assigned and um, I felt with, I had one small job, the one small commission, I should say. Mm. And I had this part-time teaching gig at the Institute, which had also turned into a modestly paying job. And I could just survive between mm -hmm. this one first commission and my part-time teaching gig at the Institute. Mm. And it was just enough to say, okay, fine, I'm going to do this. I'm going to I can pay, I can pay my rent and I can eat. Uh, I'm going to do this. Um, mm -hmm. and one thing led to another. Uh, so it's, I would say 
in this instance, and I give, I adore RISD and I give RISD credit for almost every success I've had in my life, but breaking off and opening my own practice was less a RISD thing and mm. more, um, this is, this is the only way I can be creative and, and do my work is to get away from this job and shape my own job and my own life. Right. Right. Wow. So now if we uh, flash forward, your firm is working on many projects um, for different universities, including Princeton, Harvard Law School, Penn, Brown University. Um, So what what makes your firm well suited for designing buildings and spaces for the 21st century of higher education? You know, in some ways, I would say in this way, RISD really continues to have an impact uh, because I think what many educators and administrators of educational institutions don't really understand is how studio education being taught in a studio through a reiterative critique process um, is actually the the best basis for 21st century education. And, Mm. you know, recently when, when Yale reopened uh, during COVID reopened its campus, the pressure to reopen came from two ends of campus, the art end of campus, the studio people, the architects, um, the the musicians, uh, the art school, and from the science end of campus, people in labs saying, we need to get back in our labs. We cannot do this work in our bedroom, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that really sort of reflexively showed what we have been saying for a long time, that understanding how art education works actually helps you understand, broadly speaking, how education works. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is what makes us good at doing these kinds of buildings or the Mm. buildings for these kinds of of clients. Those, you know, or these universities and colleges and schools that are mission driven about the value of knowledge, education, wisdom, and creativity, having gone to RISD is, was great preparation for that. Yeah, no, I mean, I hear all the time, uh, people saying, Oh, everything's going to be remote now and there's no need to go into the office anymore. And I just like, can't, can't really connect with that so much. I'm just like, I don't know. I think we really, human beings really want to be together. And, uh, I agree. I think maybe we'll get we won't fly as often for stupid meetings. Like you won't, yeah. I won't fly to Chicago for a one hour meeting and then fly back that right. we can use zoom for that's fine. But sure, yeah. working together creatively, um, we, we want to come together. Right. So you became the Dean of the Yale school of architecture in 2016. And I just recently heard of about your reappointment. So congratulations on that. But how has, uh, those, skills that you've learned um, in your leadership role transition to your practice? Mm. (laughs) Well, in some ways, it's uh, the other way around uh, in that I was practicing architecture for a long time and teaching architecture for a long time. And then I became a dean. Um, Mm. I have enormous respect for my fellow deans. at Yale, there are 15 of us. Um, wow. So I really listen 
to their observations and, and points of view, because we have very different areas of expertise, you know, the dean of the medical school and the dean of the law school and the dean of the school of the environment. Mm. We'll all say, look at uh, the global climate crisis. Mm. We all agree there is one and it is a crisis, but we want, we bring different um, ways of tackling it and different concerns to the broader discussion. So yeah, uh, I, I've learned by listening and respecting. Mm. <laughs> right, for sure. Yes. So uh, what do you think makes RISD RISD? What is like the fundamental, what is the pedagogy that you believe kind of uh, is embodied within all sort of students and faculty member here? Wow. Um, the people, and mm. I mean that really broadly, that's students, staff, faculty, alumni. It's it's the sort of the universe of RISD is reiterative in the most positive, supportive way. So the people and not to be overly pragmatic about it, mm. but the sheer amount of space and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. stuff in a good way, not like material accumulation at, you know, Bloomingdale's, but, mm. uh, you can, there's a loom, you can weld, you can blow glass, you can do a drawing 90 feet long. If you stretch it the length of, uh, the architecture building, mm. you can find the skull of a, this, or the leaf from a, that in the nature lab, the sheer, uh, expanse. Mm. of opportunities and ways to discover your creative voice at RISD, I don't think is rivaled anywhere. Wow. Yeah. Completely agree on that point. Um, how do you think that it sort of differs or is similar to your time uh, at Yale? Or is, are there similarities? Um, Yale has other kinds of riches, including a lot more money, but, um, <laughs> always something we seem to struggle with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Art schools always, always do. Um, Yale has extraordinary collections. You know, it has the mm. Yale university art gallery, which is kind of like the Met squish to meet new Haven. Um, <laughs> it has uh, the Yale center for British art. It has the Peabody, which is essentially its own museum of natural history. Mm. It has the Beinecke Library. So Yale, Yale is an extraordinary institution, and I am deeply loyal to it. And in fact, you know, in my will, both institutions get a bequest. Um, mm -hmm. To be clear, I don't, I don't know if the pre <laughs> President Summerson heard that. Um, but, um, but I would say at... Yale is a broad, it's a university with science, humanities, and, and social sciences, uh, health, medicine, the arts, you know, it's a broad university. RISD is very, very focused. So mm. when I think about what RISD has, it's all the possible ways to create and make. And what I, when I think about what Yale has, it's all the possible ways to gather wisdom and learn from collections, be they of books or objects or art or musical instruments or whatever they might be. That's, that's how they're different. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a great comparison. 
Um, you know that, uh, I don't know if you heard, but President Roseanne Summerson has announced she's going to retire at the end of the the year, and she's had an amazing tenure here at the school, and um, I think the committee is on to search for the new president, and um, I'm I, interested. Did you know that? I, I had just heard it, and it makes okay. me deeply sad because I admire her enormously, and yeah. I think she's done an incredibly incredible job, and I'm sorry she's stepping down. But yeah. she, it's exhausting, these jobs. I'm only a dean, and she's a president, <laughs> and it's exhausting. <laughs> right, right, right. And you know, I've, I've been asking a few of a few of my guests, uh, sort of the big question of what does RISD need in, in a in a leader, um, sort of coming out of uh, the events during the summer, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, um, the the tightening of our of budgets. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, they need another Roseanne Summerson. Um, they, you know, it's very, very hard to be a leader of an institution these days, and mm-hmm. perhaps particularly of a creative institution for all the reasons you mentioned, and maybe one that you didn't mention, which is how in the creative arts broadly writ, there is equal opportunity for everybody who has a voice to use their voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that involves both money, you know, in terms of financial aid, uh, and then access, you know, it gets back to teaching high school students, you know, how do you encourage Mm. somebody to even apply to a place like RISD? Um, Mm -hmm. And then when they get in to make it possible for them to come, and then when they get out to have an alumni network that provides them with the access they need to succeed in, in their uh, creative pursuits. Um, Mm. I don't think that the job has only gotten harder because the view of the world of leading institutions like RISD has gotten necessarily and importantly bigger. It's the whole world. It's not a small select elite class who gets Mm. to, uh, who should be part of these places. Mm-hmm. So the leadership um, has to recognize that and then make that possible. Mm. I don't envy the search committee. <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to be a very hard job to fill. Yeah, no, most definitely. Um, you know, I was talking to John Maeda, uh, former oh yeah yeah he's great yeah i love him and you know he was telling me about something when he was here first couple weeks he would he went over to the admissions building at woods gary and he asked them if he could have a list of the of some of the top people who got in and he wanted to call them and congratulate them and he would give them a call and they would be really excited they're like oh wow the president's calling me but then they would that some of them would say that like we received an offer from a different institution that was going to fund my education fully, right. and um, this burden of, of uh, the um, tuition is just too large to play that gamble. Um, and so it sounded like they had invested a lot more money into financial aid, which is awesome. And I think we should continue on that track. I, I really agree. Anyone who is good enough to get into RISD, because it is difficult to get in, um, should be able to attend without taking on too much debt. Right. So moving on, if you had access to a time machine, where and when would you go? 
Ooh, that is such a hard question because there's a part of me that's curious about you know life in the year one thousand. Um, mm-hmm. The way we count today, just it would be so interesting to you know look at food and clothing and housing and settlement. But I think life would actually be pretty miserable. So it'd be like, I would do that for a long weekend and be very happy to come back. <laughs> um, but I, I wouldn't mind actually going back to RISD. Um, mm. But with the knowledge I have now and the interests I have now, and then endless access and endless instant expertise, you know, like I would go to weld and I would know how to weld. <laughs> I would mm-hmm. you know, go to blow glass and I would know how to blow glass. I would go to weave right. and I would know how to weave. Um, so I guess I would not only travel in my time machine, but as I traveled through time, uh, I would somehow get a lot of skills instantly and automatically that I could then deploy in four more years of uh, endless RISD. I agree. If only I could go back to my spatial freshman spatial fi- dynamics class and redo the final assignment, I think that would be quite fun. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now you have really good ideas, right? <laughs> yeah. um, what what technology do you see will transform the future? And not necessarily talking about architecture, but um, sort of anything you see will make a, a large impact in our society. Medical technology, far and mm. away. I, and I think, you know, I'm old, I don't need to really worry about this, but Mm -hmm. your generation or my daughter's generation, um, people are going to live longer, I think eventually a lot longer. And we want to make sure, how do I say this? If people live to be 150, that the last 50 years of their life aren't in the condition of most 100 year olds today, you know, you don't Mm -hmm. want to spend 50 years being really miserable and old. You want to spend those extra 50 years, uh, or for some people, the extra 70 or 80 years of Mm -hmm. your life in good enough health to enjoy the world and be a productive contributor to the future of mankind and the planet. So I think medical technology is going to most significantly transform the future. I think the single biggest thing we have to worry about and all those people in the future who are going to live for 150 years, uh, hopefully in good health, have to worry about is uh, the changing climate on planet Earth and what Mm -hmm. that is going to do to the quality of life and what we have to do to forestall its worst impacts and make sure they don't happen. Yeah. Um, you know, my uh, grandma, she was in a, both of my grandparents were in a retirement home for the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years of their life. And I would go visit them. And every time I walked in there, it was just like really depressing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. And you know, that's something I have not found in my few years of, of studying architecture is examples of really amazing sort of retirement communities where I, where I see like, wow, there's a lot of life left to live in this space. Um, and I'm sure you've seen examples of that, but I think that's sort of an, an untapped uh, potential and, you know, going along with the baby boomers sort of um, 
starting on that stage. I wonder if there's possibilities for that. I'm not a huge believer in retirement communities because I think genuine communities have infants and hundred year olds and everybody in between. And it's yeah. those exchanges. Um, my mom died earlier this year. She mm. was 99. So that's a good wow. long life. Yeah. Um, she lived in the same house for 55 years and mm. we're cleaning out her house now. Um, mm. And what I found, so my mom was a fashion designer and oh. um, she, the last 30 years of her life, uh, she still did a creative, she still continued to do creative things, make her own clothes, do drawings, make mm. cards for her grandchildren, you know. Um, oh, awesome. And one, you know, I'm packing boxes of stuff and I said to my husband, oh my gosh, I can't believe mom left all this stuff. And he said, you're thinking about it absolutely the wrong way. Um, she was such an optimist that all of these things, they were projects she was still going to do, you know? And so in a way mm. this does come back to RISD and sort of the ongoing creative project is the reason to wake up the next day and, and keep, keep on doing what you're doing. And maybe what's wrong with most retirement communities. And it doesn't matter if, you know, you went to art school or used to be a fashion designer because you could plant a garden or learn to throw a pot or uh, write a novel. You know, you don't have to be a visual artist. You could mm, uh, yeah. write poetry. Um, but the idea that you wake up to continue to do something creative, I think maybe is what's missing from these places because that, mm. that's forward looking. That gives you something to do tomorrow. Um, you know, I've, I've sketched it now I'm going to paint it or I've done a first draft and tomorrow I'm going to edit it. Um, it's, it's the optimism about tomorrow that I think leads to the best possible life today. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that's why I, I also have a problem with dumping old sketchbooks or dumping <laughs> drawings. I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to this because I've gone from, you know, a hundred iterations to get to this point, but maybe I want to go back to that you know, 24th iteration and explore that one a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I found drawings of my mom's from the 1940s um, when she was at Parsons and she'd saved them all. And it was fabulous to find these things. It was really exciting and um, I don't know, encouraging and optimistic. Yeah. Those are definitely very special. Um, being, being at RISD and, and being surrounded by art at, at Yale and the vast collections that they have, are you, do you have any favorite paintings that sort of inspire some of the work, uh, that you do or that your office does? Ooh, you know, I like, uh, I like so much and I'm constantly inspired by, by new things that I see hmm. to, to say a favorite painting, I'm not sure I could answer that. I feel that there were paintings at different times in my life. You know, when I was young, my mom would take me to the the then MoMA, which doesn't look anything like the today MoMA. Um, oh. And we would look at paintings together. Um, and so that was an early introduction. Um, mm. I, I tend to look for the work of women artists. I, I like uh, pet uh, Pat Steer, Steyer, I'm not even sure how you pronounce her name. Pat mm. Steer's work very much. Uh, I loved the waterfall installation at the Barnes. Mm -hmm. um, the painter Titus Kafar is a friend and a client. And I really, really admire 
not only the technical virtuosity of his paintings, but the things that they demand we think about, um, about our past as Americans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I don't know. I I can't answer your question about one painting because I'm always going to look at the next painting. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Was the, when your mom was taking you to the old MoMA, I'm curious, was it in the same location as it oh, is now yeah, or was yeah. it? I'm not it that was. old. Um. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know if it moved because, you know, they tore down that beautiful folk museum that they had there. Yes, um, yes, yes. No, that's recent. No, yeah. it was in its current location, wasn't nearly as big and the work was arranged if I'm, and this is relying on memory, a little more chronologically. Um, mm. And my mom liked showing me the Picassos. Mm. Um, Not so much that she was this huge fan of Picasso, but more because you could see the um, a a sort of personal creative history in Mm. one person's work by how his work changed over his long life. Um, And that was really interesting for me. That I remember. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the RISDiology podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and may not express the views of the Rhode Island School of Design. RISD is not responsible and does not verify the accuracy of the information contained in our podcast series. The primary purpose of RISDiology is to educate, entertain, and enlighten. If you have any recommendations for guests, please reach out to us on our Instagram page. RISDiology is currently looking for students who are interested in joining the team. If you have a passion for post-production or sound editing, please let us know.